<laughs> Welcome back to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Hey, welcome back for another episode of the show. Uh, releasing a day late this week. It's Memorial Day weekend, and uh, honestly, I've just been busy. And then on top of that, I had some computer issues that kind of slowed me down a little bit. But you don't care about that. You are here for the show. So let's keep moving. Um, if you are new here, then the most important thing for you to know is that whatever we do on this show... It all leans back on our three guiding principles, peace, property rights, and free markets. Those kind of things tell us really how we should feel about any given issue. We can look back to those things and we can ask, is it peaceful? Does it respect somebody else's property? And does it allow people to spend their money as they choose? And as long as the answers to those are yes, that pretty much tells us how we should feel about it. Got a great show for you today. We're going to talk about the new abortion law that's been passed in Alabama. We're going to catch up just shortly on Iran and what's been going on with them since the last time we spoke. And finally, we're going to talk about some comments made by Ilhan Omar and just who she is, where she stands on things, and some of the comments that she's made that you've probably seen in the news over the past few weeks. And I I bumped that show back a couple of uh, times because I kept just having other things that kind of were just a little bit more time sensitive that I wanted to talk about. And this is something that is constantly coming back up, and you're going to see it again and again every time she makes the news. So I want to talk to you about what's going on here so that you'll know what to look for as this continues to unfold. But let's start off with the heavy stuff. Uh, We're going to talk about the abortion laws in Alabama. Anytime we talk about abortion, I want to lay one ground rule for this conversation. Abortion is a very emotional issue, and that means that it tends to bring out the worst in people. Uh, You already know what I mean, right? If you listen to my test episode that I did on abortion, I laid out a very convincing case for not one, but both sides of the abortion argument. I also presented a pretty reasonable compromise for both sides. If you're interested in that, you can go back and check it out on episode 0.2. The format's a little bit different, the music's a little bit different, but uh, there's still some really good content there, and if that's something you're interested in, I highly recommend that you check it out. However, whether you listen to it or not, the one thing I want you to remember about emotional issues such as abortion or guns or religion, it's that you cannot change someone's mind on the topic. Emotions are, they're almost like a concrete foundation. Those things get set in there and it's almost impossible to move them. And that also means it's likely that your mind can't be changed either when it comes to those emotional topics. And and that's completely normal. That's the way that we're wired as humans. So don't beat yourself up over it. But if we want to be the most reasonable, well-rounded, most dispassionate people that we can be, then it's important for us to keep that in mind especially when we're wading into these hot-button issues. So, if we're going to talk about abortion on the Make America Garrett Again podcast, and I'm sure this will come up again numerous times, my one ground rule is you have to be willing to admit that abortion is a complicated issue. That's it. That's all I'm asking you to do. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot on both sides, but... I just want to be able to go into these things and say, hey, this is difficult. I can see both sides of it. We're we're going to leave the straw men at the door here, right? Democrats aren't just baby killers. Republicans aren't just woman haters. Um, We're all friends here. You're welcome to hate women and babies equally as far as I'm concerned. That's okay. But um, you're welcome to your opinion on abortion. I'm sure my opinion, I'm going to let it slip sooner or later. 
But the, the point of it is, it's difficult, right? You know, if you are pro-choice, you're going to lean a little bit more toward how does this affect the mother? How do we protect the rights and the life of the mother? And if you are pro-life, you're going to be looking at the rights of the baby and you're going to say, you know, this is a human being, it's alive, and we need to protect it because it's a person um, and we need to stand up for the people who are least able to speak. Either one of those sides, I think, is logically okay. And the problem that we have is when we get so caught up in bashing the other side and knowing that we're right and the other side's completely evil that you can't have a conversation about it. Again, you're welcome to your opinion. That's fine. We just need to agree that it's complicated and that it's just a hot-button issue that's going to come up all over the country over and over again. If you can't talk about abortion without name-calling or making straw men, then you may need to go to the kids' table to sit this one out. But for now, it's time for the adults to talk about what's going on in Alabama. Alabama has just passed a law banning almost all abortions. There is no exception here for rape or incest, as most of the other times they typically do have that exception. The only exception is that the, if the mother's life is at risk, like an ectopic pregnancy or anything like that, that it's going to kill the mother if she continues with this pregnancy, or if they can prove that the baby absolutely will not survive past birth. That is when they will allow an abortion. But again, if it was a case of incest or rape, that's not covered under here. They still couldn't get an abortion. Any doctor caught performing an abortion here is to be sentenced to 99 years in prison. This law is the most restrictive abortion law in the United States, and Alabama's got plenty of attention in the news and, and these conversations all over the country. So everybody's talking about it. You know, your pro-life people are thrilled that justice is finally served, and your pro-choice people are horrified that women in Alabama don't have rights anymore. However, as you may already know, they probably aren't going to be able to enforce this law because it goes against the Roe v. Wade ruling. A lot of times, someone will propose and even they may even pass a law to score political brownie points from their base, even though they know the law cannot be enforced. You saw this happen, I think it was in Georgia uh, a month or two ago, somebody issued um, to make a point about how abortion laws were infringing on the rights of women. They proposed a law that would tax men on their sperm and all of this kind of crazy stuff. And it was just supposed to be, you know, something that was way overboard to prove a point. And, you know, the law didn't go anywhere or the bill didn't go anywhere. And um, I'm sure whoever introduced it didn't intend for it to. But you'll see them put out these laws and just try to make a point to let everybody know, um, you know, in, in a way, it's almost like virtue signaling. You know, you're, you're doing something that doesn't really make a difference in the world, but you want all the people that are already like you to like you even more. So kind of silly, but whatever. That's what this law in the strong Republican state of Alabama was meant to do. Even the governor, she admitted that she doesn't think this law is going to do anything. Got a quote here. It says, no matter one's personal view on abortion, we can recognize that at least in the short term, this bill may similarly be unenforceable. As citizens of this great country, we must always respect the authority of the U.S. Supreme Court, even when we disagree with their decisions. Many Americans, myself included, disagreed when Roe v. Wade was handed down in 1973. The sponsors of this bill believe that it is time once again for the U.S. Supreme Court to revisit this important matter, and they believe this act may bring about the best opportunity for this to occur. End of quote. In other words, Alabama has passed this law knowing that they will be sued. The uh, ACLU has already filed a suit with them, by the way. 
and they know that this law will be challenged by the Supreme Court at a federal level if it gets that high. That's obviously what they're hoping for. may go through lower courts. That's not that important. Since Roe v. Wade has long been settled and is accepted as law, pro-lifers have basically been stuck hoping and waiting that the Supreme Court would get a solid pro-life majority and that they could hopefully one day challenge it in court and get it overturned. By the way, side note, this is the reason the Democrats were so hell-bent on keeping Brett Kavanaugh out of the Supreme Court. It had nothing to do with what he did at parties in college. It had nothing to do with how much he drank or any of the women that he may have been with. They were afraid that because he was pro-life, that that allowed an opportunity for the conservatives to take the Supreme Court and something like Roe v. Wade could be overturned. Now, I am no fan of Brett Kavanaugh. You know, the guy was absolute garbage when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, absolute garbage when it comes to the Tenth Amendment. Uh, He is not going to do his part to uphold the Constitution, okay? He believes that the federal government is more powerful than anybody, that they should have the right to go through your stuff as they please. If you haven't done anything wrong, then you've got nothing to hide. So let us just poke through your messages and emails and, you know, maybe your medicine cabinet. Who knows? That's how he feels about it. Um, none of that stuff mattered to the Democrats or, or obviously the Republicans either. Uh, what mattered to them was he is pro-life, and that is what scared them the most. But I'll stop that rant right there. Um, since the court handed down the ruling of Roe v. Wade, we're all pretty much stuck with it forever, right? Well, not exactly. See, as we're going to learn over and over again on this show... Just because the government operates a certain way, and even if they've operated this way for hundreds of years, it doesn't necessarily mean that what they're doing is legal or that it's being done the way that our founding fathers had intended. In fact, the men who wrote our Constitution actually made the judicial branch incredibly weak compared to the benches of many countries who had come before us. But they had realized something incredibly important. They realized that if a judge could give a ruling, and that ruling applies to every citizen in every state in every case from now until eternity, then the judge isn't really just a judge, is he? I mean, that sounds a lot more like a king. And at least if you have a king, sooner or later the king's going to die, but these rulings last forever. So what they did instead is they made the judicial branch the weakest of the three branches. Now, if you're like me and you went to public school, you were probably taught that all three branches were equal in power and this formed some sort of perfect power triangle that would solve all the world's problems forever. But you look around and here we are. The men who wrote the Constitution, they were just as concerned with the power of the people as they were with the power of the government. They had read up on all these philosophers and they had read up on all this history and they looked to see how these different democracies and these different forms of government the power always just seemed to grow. So they wanted to set something up to make sure that the power would hopefully not grow. And that if everybody followed this blueprint, then the government wouldn't grow out of control and and be tyrannical over the people as they had seen so many times in history before. So they gave the legislative branch the ability to write, change, and remove laws. And they gave the executive branch the ability to enforce those laws as it saw fit. With the judicial branch, however, they were allowed to look at one law or case at a time and they could issue an opinion on that particular law or case and that was it. And notice, I just said opinion. I didn't even say ruling. Um, 
It kind of reminds me of the, the old episode of Family Guy where everybody in the family got those cool superpowers, like super speed and super strength, and I think Stewie had like the mind control. And then Meg just had the ability to grow her fingernails really fast. Um, the judicial branch is the Meg Griffin of our federal government. They were not intended to be anything special. They were not intended to do anything powerful. And again, they were to issue opinions. They were to say this law is unconstitutional, and they didn't even necessarily have the power to strike it down, let alone to do something that was going to set a precedent for everybody, everywhere, every case moving forward. The writers of our Constitution knew that the kind of unchecked power held by most courts would quickly and inevitably grow out of control. The courts were going to take over everything. You know, essentially it would be like we would elect our president and our Congress, but we'd really be ruled by the courts. So, again, they made this judicial system incredibly weak. That means that if Congress passes a law and the court decides that that law is unconstitutional, then that law can be struck down, but it doesn't have any meaning for any law passed after that. Now, why is it important here in this conversation? Because it also means that if in the year 1973, one court says one woman in Texas is allowed to have an abortion, it doesn't mean anything for the abortion decisions of any other woman anywhere else at any other time. But, unfortunately, over the past couple hundred years, the courts have felt that they were underpowered and they were jealous of the power held by the other two branches. Power has a funny way of always spreading and taking more power, doesn't it? So, the courts started deferring individual cases back to precedents set by previous court rulings, and they quickly began teaching this method in law schools, and it quickly became seen as the norm. And just like that, the courts gained the kingly power that our founders had directly tried to protect us from. Also in this, there's a minor little detail that we hadn't talked about yet called the Tenth Amendment, and it says that the federal government is not to do anything or to enforce anything that was not directly mandated by the Constitution. Now, if you look up a copy of the Constitution and you do a Control-F and try to find the word abortion, you're not going to find it there. The Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion. What that means is that abortion laws are an issue to be decided by the states and by the states only. In other words, if Alabama was actually interested in posing a legitimate challenge to Roe v. Wade, they'd simply issue a statement that says, hey, we respect Roe v. Wade as far as a single case in Texas is concerned, but as for us in Alabama, we have voted and decided abortion isn't appropriate for our state. And we have a Tenth Amendment right to tell the rest of the country to mind their own business. That's it. It really is that simple. That is how you can constitutionally tell the United States federal government to, to be loving and open-hearted with my emotions. If you get the love guru reference there, you look at the letters of that. It spells Blaum. Um, now, that's really all you have to say to them. Now, it's not to say that there wouldn't still be a massive fight if Alabama did try this. It is the right thing to do, and it's the constitutional thing to do and the constitutional way to do it. But now we have like 200 years of bad precedents to overcome. And I'm sure you know, even if something is completely wrong, when someone says, this is the way we've always done things, that can often be very difficult to overcome because it makes it seem as if you're not just delegitimizing this one issue, but that you're going back on everything that they've ever believed and everything that they've ever done. And people view that as being very offensive. On top of 
just the fact that we've got a lot of bad precedents set up, the idea of a state standing up to the federal government to defend its rights carries a lot of connotations that go back to the Civil War. Now, I'm not here to defend slavery. Slavery is not okay. But the most unfortunate part of the Civil War, as far as liberty is concerned, is that now, every time someone suggests that a state should stand up for its rights, it brings accusations of racism and slavery and all of this stuff that is completely beside the point. <laughs> Reminds me of, uh, there's, a, there's a video on YouTube, uh, if you search for Interview with a Zombie, uh, it's Tom Woods talking about one of his books that he wrote about nullification, where states could just nullify laws that were unconstitutional. If the federal government tried to tell them something, they could just tell the government no. And he's being interviewed by this zombie, and every time he tries to talk about something in his book, the zombie will just say one word, and he just says slavery, or you know, he'll say racism, or neo-confederate, or something like that. And you know, the point that he's trying to make there is that every time you talk about the states having any kind of rights, or the states standing up to the federal government, people are automatically going to go back to these, these connotations that if you believe that the states should be able to hold on to their own power, that somehow that means you're in favor of slavery. In other words, just about everybody you talk to when it comes to this, they're going to try to push you into the straw man argument that you have to choose between either federal government overreach or the enslavement of black people. I, for one, refuse to accept that choice. And I think Alabama should too. That's what they should be doing here. All right, moving on. Uh, since the last episode, we had a bit of a rise in tensions with Iran for a week or two there. And I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I did want to give you kind of a brief, brief summary uh, and a clip of Donald Trump that seemed to slip through the cracks when it came to the news. Uh, if you listen to episode two on the civil war in Yemen, and you should, by the way, uh, it's gotten more downloads than any other episode so far. It's been incredibly popular then you know that our foreign policy is controlled much more by officials that have not been elected rather than people like the president who are elected by the citizens. This allows those people to have their own agendas and they pretty much operate however they please. So uh, a couple weeks ago, U.S. officials, they say they received a credible tip that Iran or one of its allies was planning to attack the U.S. or one of our allies. Now, that on its own is pretty vague, and later we find out that that tip actually came from Israel. So John Bolton released a statement and said that if Iran or any of its allies uh, attacked the U.S. or any of our allies, then we would respond violently and that this would likely mean war with Iran. If you listen to the episode on Yemen, you know that Israel and Iran absolutely hate each other, and you also know that Iran is friendly with the Houthis, who are fighting against the U.S. and Saudi forces in Yemen. Once more, just because they're friendly with the Houthis doesn't mean that they are the Houthis. It doesn't mean they're the same person. And this was the way that John Bolton really kind of gave himself an opening with that, with the statement that he made, he kind of gave himself an opening to go to war no matter what. So saying that the, you know, just because the Houthis attack the U.S. and Saudi Arabia in this Yemen civil war, I mean, that would be almost like saying that, um, you know, the U.S. is friendly with Britain. So if Britain does anything involving Venezuela, who's friendly with Russia, then Russia is going to attack us to get back for Britain doing this thing with Venezuela. See, it just gets confusing. It doesn't make any sense. But 
It doesn't matter whether or not it makes sense. It doesn't matter that the Houthis and the Iranians are different people. What matters the most is John Bolton and his giant mustache. They love war, and they've been dying to go into war with Iran ever since George Bush was fighting Iraq back in the early 2000s. So, about the same time um, that all this is coming out, a few rockets were fired a few kilometers away from a U.S. embassy uh, over in Iran, and that's really all John Bolton needed. Now, it's not really a big deal because the rockets, they didn't hit anything, and they weren't even that close to our embassy. Uh, kind of like if uh, you know gunshots are fired in the worst neighborhood in Chicago. It's not something that you want, but it's also, let's not pretend that it's, it's all that uncommon. So, of course, John Bolton, he goes ballistic, and he tells them that we're sending an aircraft carrier over there to intimidate Iran. You know, we're going to set up next to them, and we're ready to fight at any given moment. And we found out a little bit afterward that the aircraft carrier was actually already headed that way, and they were going to, I think, relieve some other ships that were in the area anyway, so they were just going to, you know, kind of trade out. But, of course, that doesn't fit the tough guy narrative that we're trying to establish, so that part didn't get a lot of press. As we've said before, and I'm sure we'll say it again, it doesn't seem like Trump wants this war as bad as his advisors do. And I wanted to play you a clip of this interview he did with Fox News. So you, re you can reassure people you're not looking for some kind of conflict in Iran. And well, I'm the one that talks about these wars that are 19 years and people are just there. And don't kid yourself, you do have a military industrial complex. They do like war. You know, in Syria with the caliphate, so I wipe out 100% of the caliphate. That yeah. doesn't mean you're not going to have these crazy people going around blowing up stores and blowing up things. These are seriously ill people. I don't want to say, oh, they're wiped out, you know, ISIS. But I wiped out 100% of the caliphate. I say, I want to bring our troops back home. The place went crazy. They want to keep... They, you have people here in Washington. They, they never want to leave. I say, you know what I'll do? I'll leave a couple of hundred soldiers behind. But if it was up to them... They'd bring thousands of soldiers in. Someday people will explain it. Well, this but, is an but example. You do have you do have a group, and they call it the military-industrial complex. They never want to leave. They always want to fight. No, I don't want to fight. But now, see, to me, that doesn't sound like a guy who's dying to go to war. And again, as we talked about before, he campaigned on peace. He talks about peace. He keeps talking about bringing troops home from the Middle East. And just as soon as he says something, you know, it's usually John Bolton or maybe Mike Pompeo rush in right behind him and they, they say, no, 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 this is what he meant. You know, we have to protect our allies. We have to protect our interests. All of this nonsense that doesn't have anything to do with peace at all. But uh, again, it just seems like Trump gets it. And it seems like Trump understands peace better than really anybody in the Republican Party and probably the Democrat Party as well. But unfortunately... His actions don't always match his words, and it seems like these war hawks tend to make the decisions without him, and then they make him go back on his good decisions that would be furthering peace in the Middle East and all over the world. Uh, fortunately, this time, the tensions kind of disappeared as quickly as they began, and uh, the Secretary of Defense came out and said that the Pentagon had managed to deter the threats, and everyone could calm back down. So, Everything's fine. We've decided, even though we were the ones who decided that there was a problem in the first place, now we've decided that it's okay. Um, and everybody's fine. Just carry on. So that's where we are now. Uh, I'm going to follow up if anything changes there. There's always going to be tension with Iran because of the way that we've set ourselves up in the Middle East and because of how closely we are tied with Israel and Israel has problems with Iran. So 
if anything important happens, we'll follow up again. But I just kind of wanted to give you a brief overview of just how silly this whole thing was, that we're the ones who started this and we're the ones who wanted to ratchet up and give ourselves an excuse to go to war. And for whatever reason, somebody decided it wasn't in our best interest, so they just decided to ratchet things back down for the time being. But again, if the Houthis do anything in this war with Yemen or if Iran does something that we don't like, whatever it is, we pretty much reserve the right to go to war with them if, if we want to, which, again, is it's not peaceful. and Innocent people die, but that's how we roll here. And finally, for our last segment, um, I've put this off for a couple episodes now. I uh, ended up having a lot more material on the war in Yemen than I expected. And then the last episode, I wanted to talk about Julian Assange. I felt like it was really important that as quickly as possible we talked about what was happening to him and why that case had gotten the way that it was and how he's being treated right now and how he's being held and what's happening. So I wanted to make sure that you knew that. If you missed that, please go back and listen to that episode. That's got some really chilling stuff in it, and it's frightening to see the kinds of things that can happen to somebody who's willing to go against the grain and who's willing to speak out when it comes to the truth. Martin Luther King once said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I I absolutely love that quote. I always go back to that when these kind of topics come up. It's just a, it's a fantastic thought that the, the most famous leader of the civil rights movement called for a world where it didn't matter what color your skin was. It didn't matter who your parents were. It didn't matter how much money your dad made or what side of the tracks you came from or who you knew. All your actions should be judged by their merit. Trying to do the right thing should be appreciated and trying to hurt or steal from someone should be rejected and shamed. And that's it, really. Um, there's a world where it's no longer black versus white or rich versus poor. It's just a world of human beings cooperating and growing alongside one another. Wouldn't it be great if things really worked that way? When it comes to the first of our three principles for this show, peace, I've talked about that a lot over these past few episodes, I don't think that it could get much better than that. You say your opinions, you say your peace. I judge your ideas by their merit, and I'm free to challenge them, and you're free to offer a rebuttal. And we can go back and forth for as long as you want, and we can argue our points for as long as we want. And at the end, if nobody changes their minds, we can simply agree to disagree. We may even disagree so strongly that we walk away angry with each other, and we might even call each other a moron or idiot or whatever other number of names you want to call each other. But the truth is... That's something that I think Dr. King and a lot of other great men would have appreciated. Freedom of speech is what our founders called it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're free from the consequences of your speech. If you say something idiotic and the world declares you to be an idiot, then you've got nobody but yourself to blame. you got to live with that. But you cannot be jailed for something you've said, provided that you're not threatening anyone. And it's important that we appreciate that. Every citizen of this country has the right to speak out about what they believe, even if their ideas are unconventional, even if their ideas go against accepted norms, and even if their ideas are flat out wrong or disgusting. The point here is you have a right to speak, and the rest of us have a right to make our judgments about what you said and how they reflect on you as a person. 
Some people might say things that are racist or hurtful or just flat out false. And we have a right to try to correct them or we can ignore them or we can stop doing business with them or we can call them a bigot. That's okay. That's why we have freedom of speech. Now, the Democrats and many on the left have this reputation of being very vocal about speech that they don't like. And in the decades after the civil rights movement, they have often been the party who's fought the hardest against racism. But somewhere along the way, and especially since the Barack Obama presidency and through the dumpster fire of election we had in 2016, the left's attacks on racism got kind of lazy. You know, they'll call you racist for wearing the wrong clothes or eating the wrong food or if you live in the wrong neighborhoods. Um, there's even an article out there that I've seen that says uh, that it's called digital blackface if a white person posts a GIF of a black person saying something. So if you're commenting on your Facebook thing and you post the wrong meme or you post a picture of someone who's not your race saying something, then that can be construed as blackface. Now, this was one person and they were probably just trying to get attention, but we've got to at least admit that that opinion's out there floating around somewhere. So, because you're free to walk away from that, the constant accusations of racism have often shut down lines of communication. And it it sends everybody off to their separate sides. And when you get separated and you're only on a side with people who talk and think like you, then echo chambers happen. And when the echo chambers happen, the rhetoric just gets worse and it just gets more intense. You know, then before you know it, everybody on the right is a card-carrying Hitler-saluting Nazi, and everybody on the left is a communist, Muslim apologist, gender-neutral college student, and they hate America and everything about it. You know, I, I know there's dirt out there on Martin Luther King, but I think back to the core of what he said and the core of what he was fighting for, and I think if only he could see that now. Now, I'm not trying to say that real racism doesn't exist, and I think Donald Trump definitely kind of leaned toward some of those feelings toward his campaign. And that just reinforced the left's notion that all Republicans were racist. Just really fanned the flames there. Now, let's be realistic here. Let's be flat-out honest. Some people out there are absolutely racist. You know they are. They probably know they are. The words that they say and the things that they feel... There's no denying it. And maybe there's some other people out there who might have a few racist feelings because of the way that they were brought up or because of some bad experiences they've had. Maybe there's some other people way out in the country somewhere and they've never met a non-white person in their life. And maybe they're just flat out ignorant about any culture that's not their own. None of those three are the same things. And they don't like being lumped in with all these other people. Let's look at the content of each person's character. Am I right? And now our country isn't so divided up into races anymore, but especially in the media, we are very divided between party lines. And Republicans hated it when every time they criticized Barack Obama, the left said they were just going after him because he was black and they were racists. And and they'd say, no, we just think Obamacare is going to raise everybody's health care costs and maybe we shouldn't try to spy on every American cell phone, huh? And so many times the left would simply reply with, nope, you disagree because you're racist. Well, as our country has grown, it's also become more diverse. And that means that we have some Muslims serving in Congress now. One of these is Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar. She is an immigrant from Somalia, 
She uh, is a she's a Bernie Sanders style Democrat, really. She wants free college, um, Medicare for all. She wants a living wage, uh, free housing, gun control. You get it. The difference between her and Bernie Sanders is that Bernie Sanders redirects all of his talking points to millionaires and billionaires and how they're evil and they're all that's wrong in the world. And Ilhan Omar, on the other hand, she's always trying to say something edgy to piss off the old rich white guys, which ironically, um, it includes Bernie Sanders. But nonetheless, she has a right to those positions. And obviously she's not alone because somebody up there in her district is voting for her. She's winning elections and she's got a lot of Twitter followers. She's got plenty of support. So I'm not here to say that she can't think those things. Now, We all know Muslims and Jews do not necessarily get along, uh, especially in the Middle East. We also know that the U.S. is heavily involved with the country of Israel. We sell them weapons, we provide a lot of their defense, we do bargaining on their behalf, and uh, plenty more. And they are often trading blows with other countries in the region, and there is constant fighting between the Israelis and the Palestinians in their own country. So, People from all of these sides have been attacking each other for decades. You can like that or dislike it, um, but we need to at least admit that it is an issue that's out there um, that our country is involved in. And yes, I understand that from a Christian point of view, a lot of people feel that there is a need or a command to be allies with Israel because of their relationship with God. I understand that, but... At the very least, you can like it or dislike it. We need to at least admit that it is an issue that's out there for our country. It's Again, it's something that's a little bit complicated and a little bit messy, and it's hard to just draw a line in the sand and say that this is the way it should be. So, Ilhan Omar has been critical of our dealings with Israel. She thinks that Israel has been in the wrong too many times, and perhaps we shouldn't give them so much support. This is a freedom of speech thing, and it's also a representative democracy thing. We can agree with her or disagree with her, but it's important that we don't judge her by the color of her skin or her religion, but by the content of her position. So, uh, a journalist tweeted about this controversy, and he said it was, quote, stunning how much Americans defend Israel. And Ilhan Omar replied, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. Someone asked her what she meant, and she replied with APAC, which is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. That's the largest pro-Israel lobbying group in Washington, D.C. Now, in episode one, we talked about a lot of this lobbying, where you can basically buy votes. If you raise enough money, you can get senators to vote whatever way you want, and it's completely legal. And everybody agrees that this is a problem, unless somebody on their side is doing it, and then it's, well, that's just the way we have to operate in Washington. But if the other side has a PAC, and they're raising money, then you know we all know that this is a problem. But did the Republicans address her concerns about the lobbying? No. She made a reference to money. This can only mean one thing. She was making derogatory slurs toward Jews. And finally, the right gets to say to the left, you're racist. And before the left can even react, the Republicans are going ballistic about how shocked and disappointed and flabbergasted they were that Ilhan Omar would ever say such a thing. Now, of course, the truth is they weren't shocked at all. They knew exactly what she meant. But that didn't stop them from doing their victory lap all over Twitter and all over Fox News. 
The left is racist. They're anti-Semitic. This is a huge win for the right. You know, I, I kind of picture in my head like Mitch McConnell pulling a, a string that rains streamers down on the Senate floor. You know, George Bush is probably sitting at home in his Batman pajamas with like just a single tear dripping down his eye is just what I picture anyway. And they were so, so excited over this. They loved every minute of it and they acted like they were appalled, but you know, they were thrilled. And then on the other hand, when all this went down, the Democrats were stuck trying to figure out how they were going to handle it. They've spent so much time calling out against racism, but along the way, they've also kind of changed the definition of racism. And the Jews don't really fit the kind of people the left is fighting for when they talk about racism. And you've got um, Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and they're backing up their friend, Ilhan Omar, and they are rightly saying, come on, this is ridiculous. You know what she meant. But Nancy Pelosi, she's trying to do damage control and trying to play the game of politics and just usher in an apology instead. But a lot of these incoming younger reps, they're driving her crazy because they don't play the game the same way that a lot of these older, more conventional Democrats have gotten used to it. And it's really caused some shakeups in the Democratic Party. And I think that's going to be another tough hurdle for them to get over going into 2020, is you've kind of got the old guard fighting against the new incoming people. And Ilhan Omar is one of these new incoming people. So the Republicans jumped on her um, kind of out of context and really weren't fair with her. And then her party really didn't have her back either, which conservative media, they're going to be all over that too, because you know Nancy Pelosi didn't really even back her up. So after a couple months, um, things kind of calmed down. But, of course, now the right is playing the left's game, and they have labeled Ilhan Omar as an anti-Semite, and now they're watching her. Well, a video comes up where Omar referred to the 9-11 attacks, and she said, some people did something. And again, Republicans went absolutely crazy. I mean, do you remember 9-11, the worst terrorist attack on American soil? Every American alive at the time could tell you where they were when they heard the World Trade Centers had been attacked. 3,000 people died. Our country rallied around the flag and we vowed to punish the terrorists who attacked our freedom. And she says, she has the audacity to say some people did something? Really? Soon after this comes out, Donald Trump retweeted a video of Ilhan's quote, some people did something, and it showed footage of the planes hitting the Twin Towers. The left, at this point, accuses Trump of inciting violence against Omar, and she starts talking about all the death threats she's getting, and everybody just goes completely berserk, which I don't really buy that either. If you want to be a public servant, if you want to be on the national stage in such a heated time, I think politics have always been pretty heated, but now... People can always get to you, you know, they can they can tweet at you, they can email you, whatever. You're going to get death threats. I'm not saying that that's okay, but let's not pretend that you're shocked that some nobody who's hiding behind a keyboard says mean things to you. You know that's going to happen. Same thing with the president. When you're the president, you know that part of your job description is that half the country is going to hate your guts and wish you were dead. Sorry, that's what it is. You signed up for this when you ran. So I don't really take a lot of that seriously either, but I feel like they played it up for all it was worth and wanted to make sure everybody knew. But let's hold on for a minute. Some people did something. Whenever the media gives you such a small snippet of something with absolutely no other details other than, of course, reminding you that this person is a bigoted racist or that they hate America or whatever, a red flag should pop up in your mind. What's the context here? What are they leaving out? 
What else am I missing? What about when you hear that Donald Trump referred to Mexican immigrants as animals? What about when you hear a very short quote of a young Hillary Clinton laughing about defending a rapist? What about when you saw a single still image of a white boy in a MAGA hat smiling in front of a Native American with a drum? Not a lot of detail there, is there? Why is that? Well, we're long past the days of the media reporting facts. Facts are boring. Facts don't sell. What we need is a narrative. And if we're going to bother with any facts, they need to fit the narrative. And the narrative here is that because Ilhan Omar has spoken negatively about Israel and about our support for Israel, and because Ilhan Omar is a Muslim, then she is an anti-Semite. But what did she really say in an event for the Council on American-Islamic relations last month? Here's the quote. Here's the truth. For far too long, we have lived with the discomfort of being a second-class citizen. Frankly, I'm tired of it. And every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it. CAIR was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. Does that sound like someone belittling the World Trade Center attacks? It sounds to me like she's concerned with the racism against Muslims as a result of 9-11. Because somebody else did something bad, they're all treated as second-class citizens? They're all looked at as if they have a bomb strapped to their chest? Is it color of skin or content of character we're talking about here? I mean, let's be real here. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to be a Muslim walking around this country after 9-11? I don't like it when people go after all white males every time there's a mass shooting. And Ilhan doesn't like it when people go after all Muslims every time there's an extremist terrorist attack. That should be the one thing we can reach across the aisle and agree on. But this is one of the media's favorite tactics. When the person is on our team, they're allowed to use hyperbole, similes, metaphors, all those words you learned in middle school reading class. But when they're on the other team, they get no context, and we take them completely literally, and then we freak out at what horrible people they are. Then we attach this to everything they do from this point forward. And it even goes backward as well. Um, Since all this started, somebody actually dug up one of her old tweets where she complained about how many Somalians were killed in the, the Black Hawk Down mission. And of course, they use that to show how much she hates America. Um, I looked it up. The U.S. says that we killed like 200 people. Somalia said we killed 800. And Ilhan said thousands in this tweet. And I didn't really look it up to verify any further than that because it's kind of beside the point. The point is nobody cared about that tweet until Ilhan said something negative about a political pact that raises money to buy votes in favor of a different sovereign country on the opposite side of the world. You saw Joe Biden do the same thing when he announced his run for president. He played some clips of Donald Trump, and they were taken out of context talking about the the people in Charlottesville, uh, the riots, and um, he said there were good people on both sides. And, of course, that's where the quote ended, when in reality he said there are people on good sides. I'm not talking about the rioters. So here's the point. I do not like Ilhan Omar's politics. I do not want Medicare for All to destroy health care in this country. I do not want to raise the minimum wage and put our poorest citizens out of work. 
I do not want to take away your right to defend your family with a gun if you choose to do it. But I also don't want to be judged by the corporate media's narrative. I don't want to be labeled by my skin or by my neighborhood or by my religion. I want you to hear my ideas, consider them, and maybe even we have a discussion about them if you would like to. I want you to judge me by the content of my character and nothing else. And I'd like you to do the same for everyone you disagree with. Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode. I hit a major milestone over the last couple of weeks as far as downloads are concerned. And I'm so excited that the, and I, I can't believe how quickly this podcast has picked up steam and how much it's gaining traction and how there are people all over the world now listening to this podcast and hopefully learning just a little bit more about what the media is trying to do to us and, and helping ourselves spot those things and learn how we should look at them and how we should talk about them. The next episode is going to be in a couple weeks. I've also had several people reach out and ask about uh, Patreon and where they could donate to the podcast or something like that. Honestly, I can't believe that that's happening already and that's uh, I'm just overwhelmed. That's amazing. But I'm going to be looking into that, so if you're interested, feel free to reach out to me. I'll figure something out, but anything you give would go just toward the show. Better audio equipment, advertising, if you want to you know, send me some books or something like that that you want to make sure that I read so that we can incorporate it into the show, I'd probably be happy to do that. Again, we're in the very beginning stages of that. If you want to speak to me, uh, you can go to facebook.com slash Garrett again, twitter.com slash Garrett again, or Garrett again at pm.me if you want to email me. And as always, Garrett has just one R in it. With those things being said, I hope you have a great week. I hope you had a great weekend. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.